Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for season two, episode nine of the Sheep Things podcast. We have a very special podcast for you today, our very first in-person podcast, um, kind of in honor of our one-year anniversary of the podcast here. Hope you've been enjoying the content we've produced over the last year. Stay tuned for more content throughout this year. We look forward to bringing some more great interviews and episodes to you. Uh, but today's podcast is our very first in-person podcast recorded at the farm of Laura Fortmeyer, our guest today at Jubilee Farm in Kansas. Uh, Robert and I had the great opportunity to go to their farm and see their operation, um, see how they set up their pastures and see a, a place that's really served as um, a, a lot of a foundation for the uh, Katahdin breed with uh, Laura being involved in so many different aspects of the Katahdin Association and her sheep making their way into flocks across the country. Laura, for those of you who aren't familiar with her, has been uh, super involved since the beginning and was uh, very involved in bringing Katahdins from just a little known breed with just a couple flocks to a major force in the U.S. sheep industry. And pretty amazing to be able to have somebody on the podcast here who's been able to witness that journey firsthand up close. Um, Laura is also a uh, honorary member of KHSI and we're grateful that she's willing to take the time to share with us a little bit about the history of Katahdins and how she's seen that and the front row seat that she's had to watching the breed develop. If you're a Katahdin producer, this will be a really interesting episode. And if you are even not a Katahdin producer, uh, this will be an interesting episode just to learn about how a breed is developed and the process that, that kind of goes through and how the sheep industry has changed over the years. So stay tuned for our podcast today. Thank you so much. Laura, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join us for the podcast and, and even more so letting us come and join you uh, for, this is our first time doing an in-person podcast and really appreciate you joining us and, and taking the time. Live from the living room. Yeah, this is uh, this is pretty unique and pretty incredible and really appreciate the time taking to join us. You guys made all the effort, for sure. <laughs> yeah, this is all, this is uh, mine and Caleb's first time meeting each other face to face. So all, all the podcast guys uh, see us. Uh, when we've done our videos, we're kind of, you know, 1,500 miles apart. So yeah. this is a this is I a wondered thing. if you had met. Oh, we never met That's before. so cool. Yeah. He's yeah. a lot taller in person. <laughs> and he's probably, I'm probably fatter in person. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. no, it's, uh, it's great. It is, it is really interesting getting to, to meet after coming across from opposite ends of the country. It, it's rather funny when I tell people I do a podcast. And like, oh, yeah. Oh, who do you do it with? I'm like, well, it's a, it's a breeder out in Tennessee. And they're like, how do you do a podcast with somebody in Tennessee? And, and so it's uh, pretty neat to get to, to meet here and uh, at your place. So Yeah, awesome. So maybe if you wouldn't mind, just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, if you grew up in agriculture, kind of your, your background, um, and then we can dig into a little bit more how you got into sheep and cotton. I live in Northeast Kansas now, but I came from New England and spent um, several years in Arkansas where I met Doug. And this is his family farm here. So I thought it looked pretty good to me. Yeah. Um, he did not expect to come back to the farm, 
but uh, we did. And his parents were older, elderly when we moved back here. So it was great to be near them. What part of New England? Uh, Vermont. So were you raised in you Connecticut and Vermont? Vermont is oh, where wow. I was raised, yeah. Vermont Beautiful most country. recently, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what brought you out west? <laughs> um, well, I went to college in Vermont and I got a degree in international agriculture and plan on going into the Peace Corps. And that's kind of a slow process, you know, the application process. So I went to Arkansas to volunteer for a couple of months with um, what was known then as Heifer Project International at their educational center and ranch, an hour outside of Little Rock. So um, after being there for a while, I realized I really didn't know anything. <laughs> and uh, I was kind of questioning, you know, going to another continent and thinking I could help anybody. And they, they needed some, it was, it was a time when uh, this, this, this center, which is called the ranch, um, it was the International Learning and Livestock Center, uh, was really evolving and becoming more than the cattle ranch that it had been historically. So I ended up um, staying there and I was there for another 13 years. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so I worked for Heifer Project through that. Yeah. Period. So uh, maybe we, we hear all the time about Heifer Project International and, and about you know how that was involved with the start of the cotton breed. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about kind of what Heifer Project did, um, mm -hmm. what their mission was, what what uh, really attracted you to, to go from Vermont down to Arkansas to, to work there for a few months. When I first heard Heifer Project and, I, and Jim talked about it in our podcast with him, I kind of I just went to Google and looked at the map, you know, where they're located and kind of the layout. I thought it was just kind of like a, you know, uh, when you say project, you think it's just like a, a research project or something. I didn't realize it was a, a ranch or a, a place or a, well, I mean, it's really, a big deal. Hef, what was Heifer Project International is now Heifer International. It's an international organization and it was then too. Yeah. So the, the ranch was a 1200 acre ranch that had been that they had acquired um, and, and then developed it into a place for training and for holding animals. Because back then, um, in the early 80s, they were still shipping livestock to different parts of the world, uh, as well as acquiring animals in country. And um, so really, it, Heifer is a, is a community development organization that uses animals as a tool animal enterprises as a tool to help lift people from poverty, to help improve their diets, to do community organizing and a lot of other, um, a lot of other goals. And uh, it started post-war Europe, uh, post-World War II Europe because the livestock had been decimated. And so um, some folks in the US, particularly uh, a a pastor with Church of the Brethren who had done relief work in post, well, during the Civil War in Spain. And he just saw, you know, so much suffering and deprivation. Yeah. And um, anyway, he organized neighbors in Indiana, farmers and fellow church members to, to gather animals, donate livestock, dairy cattle and horses mostly to send to post-war Europe as part of reconstruction there. And uh, so it was really, you know, lots of church people who donated animals or sold animals and got on ships with them. Um, it was really something. But then that evolved into realizing that livestock are important everywhere in the world, you know, in rural 
communities and often um, genetics, you know, were poor or there wasn't um, maybe the infrastructure to support um, animal enterprises. And if you could assist people to make um, their farms, their animals, their livestock more productive or more profitable or whatever, um, it, you know, it's just part of uh, developing better agriculture economies yeah. uh, in countries around the world. So Heifer had this facility. One of the facilities they had was this uh, large ranch in Arkansas. And um, when I got there, they just had a diversity of animals. So it was a place to get experience with the diversity of livestock, which was not part of my background. I was just a girl with a horse, you know, up to that point. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was on a pretty steep learning curve. And, and because the, the small animal units were expanding for more, for more training, for doing actual gathering of livestock and shipping them a lot of goats. Um, of course, those are animals more used across the world too. Yeah, most of the heifer's work is in the tropics. Yeah. And yeah, goats are really fundamental. And primarily meat goats, dairy goats, both. Dairy goats. Um, you know, anywhere um, anywhere in the tropic, it's really a dual purpose animal is gonna be the most mm -hmm. uh, valuable. Um, I think uh, Heifer as an organization certainly and, and really all of animal science has uh, also evolved in its understanding of what is really appropriate for livestock development around the world and shipping high power genetics from the US or Europe, you know, to low resource environments is not always the best idea. But, um, but we worked with community partners and, you know, sometimes university agricultural schools or ministries of agriculture. And so there was some injection of improved genetics um, from the US, but um, lots of local animals used as well, often breeding programs, you know, that would um, create some difference in the genetic pool that people had to work with, but you still, you know, adaptation is still the most important thing, really. So anyway, I, uh, I worked there um, at the ranch with education and with animal management. Uh, I really managed all the animals besides cattle. I had really knew nothing about this. You just learn as you go along. And, and I had some good mentors. And um, so I did that for about, uh, nine years and then I became uh, involved with our projects in the US, which was working with low resource um, farmers in basically the South Central part of the US, that was my region, mostly Louisiana and Mississippi. Okay. So I did that for a few years as well before. Did they have sheep when you went there? So when I got to the ranch, um, there were some sheep just just a motley, a motley yeah. group of sheep. And it was, and really they were leftovers from shipments okay. or donations, you know, because various people around the US donated animals to heifer because they wanted their animal to go help somebody overseas, uh, which, which didn't always happen, you know, because yeah. we had to be pretty selective and we didn't decide necessarily what went into a project. We had requests from, you know, the partner organization about what they thought they needed. Um, so, so there were just some sheep there and it was multiple breeds and they were just hanging out pretty much. Um, and, but some of them were hair sheep because they, 
there was a very small um, center that heifer had in California and they couldn't handle very many animals and they had too many. So somehow they got to the ranch. The ranch sort of collected animals from other small gathering centers. Um, and heifer had actually gotten involved with Katahdin's because Michael Peel, who's the founder of the Katahdin breed, um, had gotten connected. He had made inquiries to heifer um, in the 70s because he thought he knew he learned about the organization. He thought, I have a sheep that's, you know, adaptive, adaptable in the tropics. Thought he could have, and yeah. and is but is somewhat improved uh, as he mm. thought over the local sheep. And so um, they were in conversation. They ended up shipping Katahdin's to and there weren't very many Katahdin's at that point yeah. um, to some countries in Central America and also to Cameroon and West Africa. And uh, so he knew Heifer and Heifer knew him, but then there were some leftovers from those yeah. shipments, you know, the, the day before they're supposed to ship, something happens to it. pictures of that kind of stuff? Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. If, if, what if there's any documentation or pictures or anything of those first sheep that there, there is within the Heifer Project archives, I'm sure. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Road trip. <laughs> um, so, is it the and that same? would have been this, that would have been the late 70s, mid late 70s. Is, so the Heifer uh, International that I see now in magazines, stuff, that's the same organization? Yes, it is. Okay. And pretty much the same principles and operating smarter than it used to probably, yeah. you know, because cool. they've learned what works around yeah. the world. Just and the evolution of yeah. Yeah. And that's really interesting uh, that because I think, you know, we hear all the time about, well, Katahdin's made their way to have a project and then, you know, all these things happen. And it, it's really neat to hear the backstory about how they how they made it there. So he so. Well, there's more to the story. OK, well, yeah, we'll have to get into that then. That's what was <laughs> so, there when I yeah. was there. There were a few. Okay. There were some Barbados black bellies. There were some oh. suffix. There was like it was just just different sheep, yeah. some sheep, so uh, maybe 20. Yeah. Altogether, and um, so the other part of that dynamic is that a year before, maybe a year before me, Ed Martsoff and his wife had been hired. He had been hired to be the director of this place, and he was a VOAG teacher from Pennsylvania, and um, he had a very diversified background. He, had, you know, been in business and been teacher and enterprise farm enterprises and stuff, and uh, he had raised sheep. He Suffolk sheep, you know, like yeah. like people did for 4-H and, yeah. you know, the kind of sheep you'd raise with kids for 4-H right. often. And um, so he moved to Arkansas and Arkansas is a pretty hostile environment. It's mm -hmm. hot, it's humid for much of the year. It's, uh, there's a lot of fescue. A lot of um, Yeah. And, and so he knew what it was like to raise, you know, black-faced sheep. So having experience with these hair sheep particularly, and you know, many um, Katahdin breeders have had this experience where, so you start messing with hair sheep, you're like, whoa, these are, yeah. these are easier. Yeah, these are good mothers. Yeah. You know, those kinds of things where, you know, it's just easier. And they were, they were well adapted to the heat and humidity because they were hair sheep. So, um, and Jenny were, kind of interested in this. They had kind of affinity for sheep and um, saw some potential because this is a 1200 acre ranch that is heavily dominated by cattle, cattle raising. Brangus cattle was uh, okay. what they were raising, yeah. But 
there was a lot of pastures and they knew that cattle and sheep, you know, mixed species grazing was just sort of starting to be talked about. So there was potential um, to, to increase the number of sheep, um, utilize some of the pastures better, eat, you know, some variety of uh, what they knew were weeds there. So it was a real different environment than they came from in Western Pennsylvania. But, um, but they just saw the potential and, um, and also with training and with visitors and stuff, you know, having a sheep flock is uh, an appropriate cool. idea. Yeah. yeah. Was the idea to raise their own lambs to use to send to other countries? There was some of that yeah. too, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, potential supply. So at that point uh, in 1980 or whenever I think they arrived, there was the Peel Farm flock uh, in Maine and there was really one other flock. There were a couple of small, smaller flocks. There, was, there were a few in California. I mean, it's really surprising um, that Katahdin's made it to California. Yeah. There, was, uh, there was a flock in New Jersey, Henry Licardello, um, and South, Southern New Jersey. And then in Vermont, all places, uh, there was a man named Paul Jepson, who was a very crotchety, um, stubborn old man who was was interested in what Michael Peel was doing. They actually met um, because they were both interested in importing Wiltshire horn sheep from England. Hmm. Because if you know the history of the Katahdin breed, uh, the Peel farm played around with that because the Wiltshire horn was a shedding breed, but it, its downside was it had these big old horns. It wasn't that prolific. It's uh, its coat wasn't really hair, um, but but it it shed. Uh, it was not extremely docile, but it was you know pretty heavy boned, you know decent meat cheap. So they both wanted to to experiment with Wiltshire horn, and so they met. And Paul Jepson learned about what Michael Peel was doing that he already had a hair sheep. So they got together, and Paul Jepson started a flock, and. Um, he eventually incorporated St. Croix genetic syndrome because he wanted to make them even hairier. And, uh, and he didn't want the horns um, that the Wiltshire horn introduced. Uh, so the Wiltshire horn had a pretty, uh, pretty strong influence on the Peel farm flock, but they eventually decided to select away from horns because when you, when you have horns in there, which you have a lot of scurs when you have these mm -hmm. intermediate animals and the scurs are pretty undesirable. So they started to select away from horns, which means really selecting away from the Wiltshire horn influence. But there still is, you know, they're still there in the Katahdin breed. So Paul Jepson took it a different direction, um, incorporated some St. Croix genetics. Uh, I'm not really sure where he found them. I think, you know, there's a, a flock of St. Croix at, at Utah State, and there were St. Croix in Florida. Um, I think by that time, both Paul Jepson and the Peel Farm were connected with Charles Parker mm. because Charles Parker was also, you know, working on some projects yeah. uh, that incorporated some hair sheep genetics. So did, did the Peel Farm actually have as much St. Croix influence as the, uh, the Paul guy? I mean, well, they did because the original hair sheep that created the Katahdin were from St. Croix. Yeah. There was no St. Croix breed at that time, but they were genetics from the Virgin Islands. Right. So they were essentially 
yeah, similar. Um, but Michael Peel, of course, had used it with his existing wool flock and over a period of 20 years crossed, you know, crossed again, selected for, um, for his base. So his sheep, because they were really upgraded from crosses with wool sheep, um, were probably very low percentage St. Croix or Island. You know, we don't really know. Uh, he was aiming for a hair coat. Right. Okay. So whatever that took. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's just 20 years of crossing just sort of keeps stirring up the pot, you right. know, and he kept selecting out. Um, but he had animals that probably had a little better muscling than St. Croix, um, uh, a little stockier. They didn't look just like St. Croix, but you could tell they were related. But Michael Peel had actually gone uh, with some animals, some some of his sheep to Guatemala with heifer. He made oh, wow. a trip, yeah, on a plane with them. And um, and they had an earthquake after they arrived. So that was kind of traumatic, I oh, think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he eventually got home. Um, he died maybe, I don't know if it was a year later. Um, and so his wife, Barbara, then took the reins and they had a farm manager who was uh, a German fellow that, um, and he was very keen on the Wiltshire horn. Uh, and I, so they continued to sort of work with that, but then eventually he left the scene uh, and, and another, um, another fellow became the farm manager and that's Charlie Brown, okay? So uh, Charlie was, Charlie and Barbara worked very well together. And this is early 80s, mid 80s, what kind of? This is late 70s. Late 70s. Yeah. What year did Phil die? Yeah, I'm, I thought it was like 79. Okay. We didn't really become acquainted with Peel Farm until probably 80, 83, 84. Gotcha. Uh, his initial contact early on was just he just reached out and said hey i want to donate right to the and... to the program directors yeah. with heifer not to the ranch there was okay. not the connection okay. with the ranch gotcha. so yeah so we did not know michael and then we eventually came in contact with barbara yeah uh so yeah the flocks that existed were taking little different directions but it was all like experiment time you know really and um so at the ranch, we realized these are really well deep adapted sheep to Arkansas. If we want to increase, you know, sort of enterprise diversity, even in Arkansas agriculture, these sheep could be an option for people. Um, so that that was kind of the impetus be, behind increasing the flock also. And uh, so we ended up acquiring sheep from Mr. Jepson in Vermont. And I'm not sure if it's because it was just a little closer than Maine <laughs> or because he had like a pile of them and wasn't really, you know, like wasn't really selling them much. It, it, was, it was an adventure, like right. he was an adventure. Um, so we took some sheep um, from there two different times, I think, back to Arkansas, you know, maybe 20 ewes, 20, 25 ewes. Uh, and that was the basis of the heifer flock. Um, I think only one time did we get rams from the Peel Farm. And they were a little different style. Um, they were 
probably smaller frame, stockier, broader type animals by then. They did a lot of experimenting. They they brought in some St. Croix rams, they had some South Down rams. You know, Barbara Peel wanted to, you know, improve carcass. Um, it's the same things that, you know, yeah. people work on now. Right. Improve carcass. And, it was always a risk of losing, you know, a good shedding coat. That was really important to them in Maine to have a good shedding coat. They felt like an animal with a really good hair coat sheds snow in the winter, and that was very important to them. Yeah, yeah. they had and good barns. Um, they had a good setup. They did. They, you know, made silage and fed that in the winter. They had beautiful pastures. It's, it's up in north central Maine, but absolutely beautiful place. And do you think the there's any difference in because Jepson flock was more, had some more St. Croix influence. Do you think there was some difference in maybe parasite resistance and kind of adaptability because they had more of the hair sheep influence, whereas the old farm had more of the Wiltshire horn and kind of some of those wool breeds, or do you think they're pretty similar sheep early on? Um, there was a lot of diversity within the sheep okay. anyway, gotcha. I would say. I would, you know, because there was some more St. Croix incorporated into Jepson flock. Um, yeah, on average, they looked maybe a little different, um, but and Peel Farm in Maine, just their environment is going to, you know, the sheep that worked there were going to be just a little different. Uh, Henry Lickardello's sheep in New Jersey, so that's farther south. Um, they came from Jepson's flock. They were just really stout, um, thick ewes, really, really nice ewes. Anybody today would have um, been glad to have that group of ewes. So this is something I've wondered for a long time. Back when there were just like three Katahdin flocks or just a few Katahdin flocks, how did they market them? Uh, was it because, I mean, people weren't used to going to the sale barn and seeing hair sheep. It probably wasn't really much of a market there. What what was that like? Were people mostly selling direct meat lambs? Because I mean, they, but uh, how did how did they tell people? Yeah, these are actually sheep. They're not goats with with different looking ears and bodies. Like, we didn't have the internet to market stuff. Yeah, they would, yeah, no Craigslist. <laughs> well, um, they would bring their excess to livestock auctions and get hammered. You know, okay. the the market was very prejudiced against these sheep. Obviously, yeah. Um, no, there was not a lot of uh, reinforcement market-wise, uh, but the fact is, you know, a hair sheep in the U.S. is a pretty practical thing. So, you know, people, some people are willing to try them. They probably, I don't know if they did advertising. I've wondered that too. Like, where did Peel Farm sell? sell they probably sheep? ran ads in the back of a magazine, like the I think grow, you're right. Grow worms, you know, like. I th no, to be honest, at that time, that would have been <laughs> yeah. a, a normal thing to do. So it's possible. I think their meat lambs just went to an auction and they just, yeah, treated them mm -hmm. like goats, probably. And the goat market, the meat goat market in those days was not like it is now at all. So, yeah. but, but also um, those two flocks were in New England. So mm -hmm. there were a lot more Diversity. lamb and goat eaters there yeah. to yeah. begin with. So the market was still better than it was in Arkansas. Yeah. Let me tell you. Um, <laughs> But they must have, they sold some females, obviously. Um, and just little by little, you know, there were some here, some there. Uh, they were unusual though. They're, I'm sure some people treat them like exotic animals almost, you know. Mm -hmm. 
you know there's always that picture even in our in our area in middle tennessee there's this picture that shows up all the time that people seen they call him the goat man and he's got this little carriage and it's being pulled by a couple of goats but there's two or three katahdin sheep in that that's that's i mean it's obvious to to us as a katahdin breeder that's not a goat but they called him the goat man because he's pulling his sled with mm -hmm. goats but there's not there's two or three katahdin rams in that uh, interesting carriage of animals pulling them around the, I'll, I'll dig do, that up you know how michael peel first got onto this have you heard that story uh -huh. well um so he was looking michael peel was a really smart guy and he'd been around the block you know he, he came from wealth and he'd done some traveling but he was reading a national geographic magazine and uh so this is like in the mid 50s and um so he's reading this article about i don't know saint croix or an island virgin island i don't know what and they had a picture of a fort you know old rubble of a fort and um there were animals just run around grazing like they do there just run around and um the caption said goats foraging at the old port whatever and he looked at that picture he's like those aren't goats because goats tails go up right. sheep tails go down and so he and he was a sheep raiser he recognized those are sheep there are hair sheep in this world he had no idea and he thought, I gotta, I gotta find out about this because he was frustrated with, with dealing with wool. He was frustrated with it. He really wanted to focus on meat. This is Maine. There's a tremendous, you know, lamb market in mm -hmm. New England, um, and he wanted to focus on that and not have to mess with wool, maybe. But he didn't think it was possible. Well, this gave him the idea that maybe it was possible. So he, you know, got assertive and started writing letters and found. Um, the director of a, a ag agricultural research station in uh, St. Croix. And yeah, they had sheep. Yes, they had a, you know, a flock of sheep at the station. And so that's how he ended up importing a few sheep from there. I think they arrived in the winter. By the time they got there, you know, they came on a plane or something. That that's how it started. That was that was the only importation of hair sheep from the islands. So I have a copy of that picture. Mm -hmm. Roxanne found fuzzy. the magazine on eBay. Oh, did she? Yeah. And she has the an actual uh, mm -hmm. National Geographic mm -hmm. magazine that he's seen, and she sent me a picture of that page. Uh, he had to be looking at it pretty close because I've looked at that picture and I think it's it's, it's not that it's, obvious, no, you it's know. Not. I mean, but he just knew his, he knew animals. Yeah, so. if you just glanced at it, you're like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. flip a page. You know, you'd have to be kind of like the goat man picture. When I looked at it, I, right. I didn't take 10 minutes to know that, that was a sheep. Mm -hmm. I just like, that's a sheep, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, he had to, he was on his A game to mm -hmm. catch that, you know? So yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. Pretty cool deal. So most of, or all of the hair sheep influence then kind of started from those and his, his crossing with those of other breeds mm -hmm. um, and then worked from there. Yeah, he was big on Cordales. You know, okay. they had decent wool, even though it still was, I think he thought it was not profitable. Uh, even so, but he had Suffolks, he had Cheviots, you know, just kind of the breeds that um, were common up there. He bought lambs and fed lambs. Okay. Um, but also, I'm, if you've read his writing, one of the things he also realized is that sheep are management tools, can be management tools. And he saw power lines that were, yeah. you know, going through up there, Maine, and, 
and saw them being maintained and realized there's all that vegetation that sheep could be eating. We could be using sheep to manage these things instead mm -hmm. of equipment and um, people and, yeah. and now chemicals and so forth. So he saw potential. Um, yeah, he was just a thinker. He was uh, Elon Musk before yeah, Elon Musk. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Pretty amazing. So what also, so they had been selling some sheep because obviously in the early 80s, um, at least Ed and then I, and we start getting some inquiries and so forth, realize that there's enough people around the country. I'm not saying there are a lot, but even if there are 30 that we, sh we should sort of organize something, you know, so we can talk to each other, so we can uh, compare notes and so forth. And, um, and we had talked to uh, Mr. Jepson about that and he was definitely not interested in that. He was not in favor of any organization, but neither was Barbara Peel because Michael Peel was very much against a breed organization because his um, observation is that breed organizations ruin breeds. Uh, and this, you know, this was back in the seventies. We might think now, sometimes they're not. Yeah, they're not too far off. <laughs> um, and, and because again, he was very much about um, practicality and um, commercial um, profitability and, uh, you know, he wanted sheep to work for people. And yeah, he thought breed organizations pulled them, you know, mostly through shows, I suppose, in his experience um, and just fads. Yeah, that's the thing I hear the most from, from uh, especially a couple of generations back is mm -hmm. they, they associate associations with shows, mm -hmm. you know, and not necessarily breed promotion and you know like we're trying to commercialize a cotton you know for the commercial use they don't see an association as that type you know yeah. it's more of a show 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 you know so i can understand is especially back oh, back then oh yeah i'm I sure think. it was worse then yeah well i think it's really interesting too that that was kind of the goal originally for the association was just to organize people and compare notes just because the cotton organization has been noticeably different from a lot of other sheep organizations in that it's kind of maintained that education focus for a long time and tried uh, yeah, well yeah attempted to um and at least more than than a lot of other breed associations and so that's that's really interesting just to hear that that difference in the reason why it was started um well um but there was another reason too and and we became concerned about this at at heifer um there were, we felt like the breed, the genetic pool of the breed needed to be protected also because people were starting to say they had Katahdins who did not have Katahdins um, because anybody could claim a Katahdin. There was no standard, right? Yeah. Um, so, so you might cross a black belly, you know, that you scrounged up out of Texas with something else, uh, maybe a Katahdin, maybe a doll, whatever. And so here was a hair sheep, right? That's a Katahdin. So if you thought Katahdins had more value, you comment because there's nobody was checking, right? There was mm -hmm. nothing to support that. That was, um, that was the argument that eventually won over Barbara Peel. Um, you know, this was, this was a legacy of her, right. she yeah. and Michael and, um, and it did, it needed to be protected. So, and also Charles Parker, who she was in contact with because you know, she, they, she was like Michael, like who are my resources? Who can I talk to? Um, who's doing what? And um, 
And so Charles had uh, consulted with them, you know, thinking about directions for breeding and selection and so forth. And he saw the value of breed organization for sure. So he, um, he was a good influence on her really. Yeah, he, yeah. I think he, he's the one who probably convinced her uh, and Charlie Brown that a breed organization could be a good thing and was probably a necessary thing at this point. If you wanted to keep the integrity of what you exactly. Because we have the same thing now in Middle Tennessee. It's so funny. You see Craig's list ads. Right. And if it's a crappy hair sheet, they'll say it's, you know, half Katahdin, a Katahdin cross. But if it's really nice, they'll say it's a, a Dorper cross. It's the same animal, but the perception is a Dorper brings more money than a, than a Katahdin. So if they're really nice and pretty, they'll say it's a commercial Dorper. But if it's kind of scrungy and thin, it's a commercial Katahdin. Hmm. And it's the same animal, you know. Yeah. So that, you know, that's important. That's what breed organizations yeah. are really uh, for, is to protect the integrity of the breed. Uh, that was part of the Articles Incorporation, really. But also um, for, for education of the members, um, for um, group efforts at promotion, at research, at improvement of the breed, you know, those are the reasons yeah. to have a breed organization, like any organization, you're doing something together. So uh, eventually she agreed, okay, we can do this. Yeah. So what was the timeline for that? Was it like the idea came and then a couple of years later, was it a couple of months? Uh, what, how it's, long did It was that over take? a couple of years. I mean, it was all new and, yeah. you know, hair sheep were, they were not, common they were the freak show you know if you went anywhere they were not respected right. but um they were still intriguing you know for enough people that little by little there was there was some growth and particularly people with small farms who wanted um they wanted some animals you know it's mostly mostly small flocks and and shearing is an obstacle you know if you don't have to shear them it just makes them a lot easier uh, much as i respect wool it's just a fact. So, um, so we arranged to meet at the U.S. Sheep Experiment Station in Dubois, Idaho. Yes. Because, of all places, <laughs> right? Because of Parker, because that's because where he Charles was Parker at. had okay. gotten assigned there, yeah. right? So he invited us out, and um, you know that was the beginning. We met, and so the other person involved in that was uh, Don Williams, who was Ed Martzoff's father-in-law, happened to be a lawyer. Well, you need a lawyer, right? Because yeah, you're, you're writing articles in corporation <laughs> and bylaws, uh, and you got to do things right. And that's why we're incorporated in the state of Pennsylvania, because that's where Don, you know, was licensed. So, um, so we just went out there and hashed things out, you know, kind of not really knowing what we were doing. But we, we knew, also Don raised Katahdin's too. Oh, yeah, yeah. He had a small flock of Katahdins. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, we just started, and we uh, we'd had enough experience with the sheep to kind of know their know about them, know enough about them to know what uh, what kind of guidelines we should start with. We we knew that there was a lot of variation out there, and there was some claims about you know what people had. So we uh, we wanted an inspection system. Um, the thing that made Katahdins different from other sheep was their shedding coat, right? In yeah. the U.S. Like there was so few hair sheep in the U.S. that uh, 
you could pretty much distinguish them by do they shed or not and are they not Barbados black bellies, you know, which was the other hair sheep breed that um, ran around here and there. Uh, so, you know, we just, we just created a way to start and we had, um, we contacted all the people we knew who had them and see to see if they wanted to participate. The, the flock in California did not. So they were one of the earliest flocks that Peel Farms sold to, but they knew Michael Peel did not approve a breed organization, so they wow. didn't want to be involved, which is too bad because that was a population we did not incorporate early on. Wow. They probably had 30 ewes. So um, Barbara Peel, you know, had some wealth and she supported the organization early on and um, paid to have a fellow who happened to be an animal science professor from the University of Maine. I don't know how familiar he was really with Katahdin's, but he was an animal science professor and he traveled around the country and inspected all the animals that people claimed to be Katahdin's. Wow. And, you know, we could, we could know who pretty well who had actual Katahdin's because they either came from Peel Farm or they came from Jepson's Farm or they right. came from us or the yeah. New Jersey flock too. So he, he like, he inspected everyone and um, we were able to get pedigree information, you know, at least one generation, if not two. We and, would wire a guy out now if he had to. <laughs> if we just had one guy doing in, in, inspections on every registered animal, he'd be a busy guy today. It, yeah. Right. It was sheep. it was not like that then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so weird. I think there were 300 sheep or something. I wish I knew. Um, and Charlie Brown was the first registrar because Peel Farm, Peel Farm was like one of the first operations I knew that used a computer, yeah. like technologically. And and Charlie Brown was a local guy, um, but he adopted technology. Uh, I thought pretty impressively, and he. They set up a registry program. You know, we got some help setting up a registry program. So they had the computer. And so they did that for, oh, 12 years, maybe. So since Caleb's a young guy, we're talking 1984, 85. 1985 was the meeting yeah. in Dubois and 87 yeah. was when we took the first. So 86, 87 were the inspections we did over two years. I think yeah, all the animals computer, were inspected twice. A computer in the late 80s, it's a big deal. It was a big deal. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it was, uh, you know, the, the hard drive, you know, uh, it was, you lucky to have a hard drive. You had a portable drive and, and the disc held nothing like, you know, maybe one voicemail in today's world. So, yeah. Yeah, memory capacity was a nothing. deal. But we used them at, at Heifer National too. Yeah. yeah. And so we did the membership end of things. Um, you know, so it was a little by little. And then, um, so we had a start and we met each year at um, the North American International Livestock Expo in Louisville because at Heifer we decided, like we had enough sheep that we were selling them. And so we were doing some promotion because we thought this is a real enterprise, you know, there's some demand for this enough that we should, like we didn't, we didn't want to have, in terms of this ranch operation, you know, it was supposed to be profitable, right. even though it was doing education. Yeah. Um, and so there was definitely opportunity for a sheep enterprise to generate income to support the operation of the ranch, you know, the training and education and so forth that it was doing. So, um, yeah, we, you know, wanted to do the real thing. So we needed to promote our animals. And um, so we went to the North American to do an exhibit. We did that for several years so we were the hair sheep people in the 
exhibition area while all those, you know, thousands of sheep were being shown in <laughs> right. the section next to us. We had a lot of traffic from over, wow. you know, from all the people bringing the animals to show or the people coming to the shows to visit to shows and sales and all that was going on there. You know, it was very interesting. We talked to, we talked to a lot of people. We had live sheep. Most people had never seen hair sheep before. They were good looking sheep. And um, yeah, it was so interesting. Very interesting. That you guys went to North American. Have you been since the Katahdins have been a show no. in breed? Mm -hmm. So, so I've been every year since I'm fairly close. Mm -hmm. And the first year, uh, the crowd, the crowd size at these show sheep are kind of low. Uh, the first year, the Katahdin show crowd was like, you'd have thought Elvis walked in the building. I mean, people are just piled up because they're amazed at how many sheep showed up. And every year, our breed is the biggest attended shows of all the wool breeds, all the other breeds, you know, by spectators that are just like, wow, look what these guys are doing. You know, look where the sheep, this is not the Katahdin that we've seen over the years. And, and it's amazing the crowd, you know, mm -hmm. that, that come to that. Yep. Well, yeah, we were an exhibit, you know, for all <laughs> right. those years. Yeah. And, and, were and we were probably mocked. Oh, you know? we were mocked yeah. for sure. You know, there was disdain, but there was also interest, oh, yeah. you know, for people who were open-minded and love sheep. Yeah. Uh, that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And they're like, well, yeah, I can see some value there, you know. Yeah. I mean, it went, ha, fair sheep. Yeah. Call, me, call me when we leave here. You know? Yes, yes. And so, you know, you know, there's been a lot of conversion. I mean, it, it's just harder to get shares. It's harder to market, you oh, know, yeah. small amount of wool. There's just those obstacles. They got older, you know, sheep raisers get older. They want to make things a little simpler, all kinds yeah. of reasons. So, so we went there for, um, for years and we did some other things too. Um, there's a sheep festival in Eastern Missouri that we went to and that, you know, there's weren't that many events for sheep back right. then. Yeah. Um, and then I think it was 1989, uh, we went to Successful Farming was having their annual expo, you might say, Successful Farming Magazine, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. uh, in Kansas City, I believe it was. We're yeah. like, well, let's get a booth there. So um, we did, and we got to do a presentation because there was hundreds of presentations about every this is sort of the heyday of small farm revival. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was just a lot of diversity there, but we got to do a presentation and we brought a couple of, of bottle lambs, beautiful wow. bottle lambs. It went over big. And so we got wow. some press from that. And um, it just like exploded. Yeah, the number of inquiries that we got was incredible. We're trying to come up with a way now on the board where, you know, a um, couple guys, Mark Dennis, John Cannon, always went to the uh, the Georgia big the big uh, farm show in Georgia. It's one of the largest southwest uh, southeast something. Yeah, yeah, I forgot I, what it's called. Yeah, yeah, and I've been several times as well. It's nice. And the one time I was there, you know, John's at his booth next to a Dorper breeder, and and me and John can't talk from the people coming by wanting to talk about sheep and so that made me go man we gotta get somebody on display at every big event like this in the country you know we need to support the breeder that's close by that's willing to do that and you know and then some of the feedback as well it only helps caleb 
No, those people might buy from Caleb, but next year they're looking for a diversified ram from somebody else, you know, and then those people might sell to somebody two states away. So it helps the whole entire breed. Yeah, the initial person is going to be the guy on display, but it, it goes downstream. It's only got really so many fast. sheep to sell. That's right. It'll go downstream so fast. So yeah, that's that is a that's a huge point that you got to you got to put a live animal in front of people, and that and then, then that triggers in their mind. Oh man, that is so cool. We were also just know. promoting sheep, really, because there you know what we found is there's a lot of people who would consider raising sheep, but they did not want to deal with shearing exactly. and wool. The day. Yeah. They yeah. just and they didn't have access to shearers or they yeah. didn't. I'm the same way. My wife told me, "No way, you're getting wool sheep." Mm -hmm. Because we didn't know hair sheep existed, yeah. you know. So that's that's a very typical story. Just for them, so just for people to see, there's another option I didn't know about. They would start thinking about we could raise sheep, Absolutely. you know. So there was just some of that. A lot of it was um, was sheep breeders or you know people had grown up with sheep or something who had some familiarity that just could see that there was another option. But also people who had never raised sheep that. You know, wanted to do something with their acreage or their land or something. Um, they always get a goat because that's what people do. So it sounds like early on, most of the promotion then of Katahdin's was by Heifer Project. Yes, it was. Okay. It was. Yeah. yeah. And we had the capacity to do it. Um, yeah. So that's the thing that we've talked about several times. Without Heifer Project, there probably ain't no Katahdin. Uh, because if, well, really without Michael Barbara, Peel, there'd be no Katahdin's. Yeah, but without Barbara, it, I mean, if you guys hadn't have really, and Charles Parker kind of wanted to organize, organize, then after she passed away, it probably would have just No, somebody out, would of. have created an organization. Okay. But I think because Heifer Project and Charles Parker was involved and the Peel Farm who were, um, they, they weren't, they didn't just act in their own self-interest. You know, they, this was really a genetic population, an opportunity for American or, you know, North American or international mm -hmm. agriculture. Um, you know, it's kind of how we all saw it. It wasn't about what can More I put my plan. Yeah. yeah, that, that, um, an intentional culture that we created through the way we started, I think. Um, now, again, there was no status no prestige in these sheep okay right. so there was extreme humility you know reinforced all the time which i think was helpful because um we focused on what do breeders need um and breeders needed education they needed help with promotion they needed um improvement you know help with selection and and uh, improve management. And, you know, those are the things that we all were interested in together, uh, besides just fellowship, you know. The other thing about people who were um, interested in Katahdin's land were nonconformists, you know. They, they knew that they could get um, disdain and they knew that they would have people that thought they were weird and um and a lot of them were weird you know we got very interesting collection of people they they tend to be innovative um nonconformists. so uh <laughs> we've heard some stories uh-huh and maybe they still are i don't know uh but um you know so it's fairly eclectic a lot of of um 
people who are really forward thinking or um, really want to do something with their farm, you know, maybe second career doing a farm thing that um, that they really wanted to make it work. They also they were there were folks who were interested in in uh, sheep for meat. Okay, so that was definitely their focus. Uh, it seems like that a lot of Katahdin kind of integrated really early on and, and have stayed in a lot of ways with more sustainable regenerative agriculture. Did it seem like that kind of movement helped um, incorporate Katahdins or was it a pretty diverse uh, group that initially adopted Katahdins? Yeah, it was, it was diverse and uh, that was really the beginnings of sustainable agriculture, you know, in the mainstream that was, that was really just uh, starting. Yeah. I would say one of the reasons that there is, depending what part of the country that you're in, there is some, um, probably some more tendency within Katahdin breeders to be um, grazing based because uh, because the sheep are very well adapted to the southern part of the U.S., the southeast part of the U.S., which has like a lot of grass resources, and um, so that's one reason. Uh, another reason, and that's really what we were doing in Arkansas with heifer. It's like we have forage resources. Here is a tool for utilizing that, an adapted animal for utilizing that. Um, but the other reason is that. Katahdins as hair sheep were very appealing to cattle raisers, right? What they want is a mini cow. That's what they're used to. They don't want to do a lot more management. Uh, and so there was a lot of interest, a lot of interest from cattle producers who wanted to diversify. They wanted to manage pastures, you know, with a complementary grazer. Um, there were in the grazing circles. There was a lot of talk about diversification, you know, species, and um, so this was a sheep that I could maybe tolerate, you know, or I could maybe work with. Um, and and cattle raisers are generally um, more oriented to pastures than a lot of sheep grazers are. You know I mean, cattle are more of a land-based enterprise on average right. in the Eastern U.S. Particularly, sheep can be raised with barns and lots, and you know that kind of thing. That's less that's less common with cattle. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So, um, I think that's the other reason that you think the lower cost of entry into the hair sheep at that time probably helped. Yes. With a diversity too, because yes. you got homesteaders or yes. or you know people that were that would not pay for a higher price, you know, so-called premium wool sheep at the time, you know. Oh, maybe uh, I don't know that that pretty much evened out, you know, once once they sort of got some jazz and in, in the um, farm media and there were more around it. It probably Katans were. They were probably more valuable for a while, a little bit more value than, than a lot of wool sheep. Yeah, well, especially yeah. in the south, because I don't think now, uh, I don't think without hair sheep, there wouldn't be many sheep other than the 4-H lambs in the south. I know. And, and there is a Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, right. Alabama, right. Georgia. Right. A lot of sheep, and it's all hair sheep. Yeah. You know. So 
what was the field farm management like? Because I mean, obviously being up in, in Maine, they're a little bit different than the South. And so it's, it's kind of funny that the breed that has really taken over the South was developed in, in Maine, all the way about as far north as you can go other than Alaska. All I can say is it's really funny because it's only because that's where the peels were. That, and you know, that's okay. where the brain was. That's the only reason. But I, I've always thought that like it's so amazing about Katahdin's is that if they can handle a main winter, especially where that farm is located, yeah. they can handle winter. But we know they can handle the tropics too. And very few animals have that breadth of adaptability. Of range, yeah. They really, um, they've been tested in both environments. Yeah, we've got a sheep breeder in Alaska that, that oh, yeah, in our Facebook group, we got a, we got a sheep breeder in Alaska and she struggles getting you know, some diversity, you know? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. But, you know, the intention was never to think that like, oh, Katahdin's could take over the, you know, the, the, the rain world, sheep, yeah. the rain sheep industry, because those sheep are really well adapted, you oh, know, right. on the Rockies. Mm -hmm. But the Southeast US, both Heifer, who was located, you know, in central Arkansas and Charles Parker, who was in Ohio, but had this understanding of the forage resource in the South, you know, lots of small farms, lots of cattle that sheep integration would be beneficial for pasture management uh, and diversification. Like he and we both saw that very clearly about the southeastern part of the U.S. as potential uh, to be. That the wool world, which is west of, say, Denver and northwest, they don't, they probably didn't see the vision of the south as being a sheep. Well, because those sheep don't belong yeah, in the exactly. south. Yeah. You know, you needed a sheep that could live in the yeah. south, and um, so we just happened to be attuned to that because of, you know, whatever where we were coming from. So it was, but it took a long time actually yeah. for sheep to expand in the south. You know, that's that's been in the since two thousands. It really it didn't happen fast. It was really the the growth was particularly um, in the Midwest. Uh, Missouri was very big. Missouri's full of small farms, you know, diversified small farms. So a um, lot of traction in Missouri, Iowa, uh, Indiana, Ohio. You know, these farm states that just have a lot of farms yeah. and uh, and diversified farms. So I'd say I'd say that's where the growth was first. Um, but certainly in the last 20 years, the South, Southeast has been very strong. Okay, guys, we're going to take a, a break with this episode, uh, episode nine with Laura. Uh, it's been a, it's been an episode. If you guys have been listening to all of our episodes uh, in the very beginning, uh, episode two with Mark Dennis, uh, we're talking about the heifer project um, and Laura and the, the formation of the association and, how the Katahdin's kind of got developed. You know, we've been trying to get Laura on uh, as a guest and, and she, she finally obliged and, and we're so blessed to meet at her house. We took a little tour of the farm and, and me and Caleb finally got to meet each other for the first time after uh, doing this for a year. So uh, it was a good halfway point, I guess, for both of us. Uh, but anyway, we had a great time and, and Laura has so much information and history and, so glad we could document it for you guys and 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 i learned i learned a couple of things from from our interview that 
I, I didn't know about. So uh, I'm, I'm sure you guys will enjoy this, and there'll be a part two coming up next. So stay tuned and uh, look forward to hearing it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Sheep Things podcast. Stay connected to our website, Facebook page, or sign up to follow us on a podcast service to get updates. We want your feedback, so you can email us at podcast at sheepthings.com for suggestions or comments. Thank you and see you later.